Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. This week's episode is sponsored by Jane Stafford Textiles. If you missed my interview with weaving legend and beloved teacher Jane on the podcast last week, make sure you download and listen to it. It was such an inspiring conversation. Getting started can be the most difficult part of any weaving project. And when you sign up for Jane's newsletter, you'll receive a free PDF download of Project Planning 101, a weaver's toolkit. This guide is full of Jane's wisdom and includes worksheets and reference charts to make starting your next weaving project easier. You'll also get to learn more about the JST Online Guild, which offers in-depth instruction for weavers of all experience levels. Your yearly subscription gives instant access to a library of foundational videos and workshops from previous years, plus each episode from the new season as they are released throughout the year, 10 episodes in all. Each season explores a theme, and in 2019, the Guild is pushing the boundaries of plain weave. I signed up for Jane's Guild immediately after talking to her for the podcast, and you should come join the fabulous community over there. You can sign up for the free guide at bit.ly slash jstguild, which is also linked to in my show notes. Thank you so much, Jane, for sponsoring the podcast. This week on the podcast, we're kicking off a new series called Contextualizing Textiles, hosted by Weave podcast producer LaShawn Moore. The farms where our materials begin have such a profound impact on what we end up making and weaving. And as weavers and makers, we can choose to use materials that support the kind of farms we want to see flourishing in our communities. LaShawn is a weaver and textile artist who recently moved from New York City to Low Country, South Carolina to start a cotton and indigo farm. I feel so lucky that we get to join along in some of her research and community building conversations as she explores the world of textile farming in its many nuances and complexities. As LaShawn will be sharing with us, it's not as simple as organic versus conventional farming, small farms versus big, or any of the other neat boxes that we could try to check off. Farming and textiles are intricately intertwined with issues of race, class, and access to money and capital. And LaShawn has lined up a fabulous and diverse range of farmers and producers who will be diving into these questions with her. Over the next few months, We'll be switching off with LaShawn sharing an episode with farmers one week and me sharing an episode with weavers the following week. Truly, we are so lucky to get a window into these conversations. I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I am. And now I'm going to pass it over to her to introduce you to the series and share her first conversation with you. Hello. Welcome to Contextualizing Textiles. I'm LaShawn Moore, your podcast producer as well as the host of this series. In this series, I'll be interviewing textile farmers and agriculturally-based weavers, textile artists, and designers. From farmers to natural dyers, we'll talk about how they found their way towards farming and being agriculturally-based makers and producers, as well as some of the challenges of starting and running a business based on natural materials. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Julius Tillery of Black Cotton. Julius is a cotton farmer from Northampton County in North Carolina. 
He grows cotton on his fifth-generation family farm and uses his black cotton decor and accessories business as a tool to educate on the plight of rural black cotton farmers as well as as a means of working towards his dream of turning his cotton into clothing. So welcome to the Just Yarn Podcast. Thank you for agreeing to interview with me. Can you start off by telling me a little bit about your background and sharing how you found your way towards farming? Okay. Um, I'm a lifelong family farmer. So I'm a fifth generation farmer. My father was a farmer before me and uh, his father was before him. And basically I just got into the business by being born into it. When you say that you got into the business by being born into it, you were raised on the farm as a kid and then you picked it up. Are you the main producer of the farm or do you farm along with other family members? Well, so uh, my father and my mother and I, we always lived uh, like two towns away from our family farm. But uh, my grandparents lived on the farm. I had aunts and cousins and uncles that lived on the farm. And uh, right now, pretty much the farm enterprise uh, on the cotton side, the cotton and soybeans, is mostly my first cousin, uh, my couple first cousins, and my dad and I working together to um, take care of our family farm. But my dad pretty much is the main, main operator of the farm. So with my business, Black Cotton, we're basically taking raw cotton that's harvested from my farm. Like, uh, so uh, I don't really know how deep and well you know the, the cotton production process. But uh, for our classroom, the classrooms we use, it's an old school building that uh, is not in use anymore by the school. It's been bought by the town. And uh, the town has turned the school building to like a community center because for the for the cafeteria, we use the cafeteria. It's like a farmer's market. You use a library, still is a, like a public library. Um, the gym is still used for, by the uh, parks and rec of the town. And uh, we have a walking track out here now. And uh, I'm we're starting to use the classrooms for businesses like myself. And uh, so I'm renting two classrooms to create products in the classroom. So I basically take my cotton to the classrooms and then I, I take... Uh, take the raw cotton and make bases and arrangements and different type of decor product line looks and um, sell them out of my classrooms. So you mentioned the cotton process. Um, which parts of the cotton process are you in? I know that you grow it, but after you grow it, where does your cotton go? So most cotton farmers like myself, like small family farm cotton farmers, we are a part of cotton cooperatives. And uh, like in the in the cotton world, we'll call it the pool. And we're so we're part of a cotton pool that basically everybody take, puts their cotton into this pool. And then the the, uh, the the cooperative, they make their deals with the textile companies. That's mostly over. Really, the processing companies are mostly in Asia and they do the, the large scale selling of the cotton. And then, you know, they sell, and then the, uh, the people buy the cotton pretty much for whatever they need uses for it. Okay, so you grow the cotton and you, along with other farmers in the area, put the cotton together and then you sell it wholesale? Pretty much so. And this, when we say other farmers, we're talking about pretty much our whole state. The group name is Cotton of the Carolinas. So pretty much all the cotton farmers in Carolina is, is putting all that, pooling all that stuff together. Mm, wow, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, it's like... It's a lot a misconception that a lot of people have is that they think it's smaller farmers doing more with their cotton than they actually do. Most cotton farmers just raise their cotton to sell to the pool, and then the pool, you know, uh, does all the stuff with the cotton. 
interesting. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in, or is it, I guess, viable to create something based off of the yield that you personally produce? Well, uh, I've looked into that. Like uh, when I first originally started my cotton company, um, Black Cotton, I was initially going to create textiles and make clothing to sell direct customers. Uh, the cotton prices right now usually range between 70 and 80 cents. And it's really not much money in, in comparison to the work that goes to the cotton. So, um, you know, I was looking at how to add value to my cotton. And um, I was thinking about making my own, you know, T-shirts and clothing, and et cetera. But that process is really expensive. Like um, for what it would take for us to raise 10,000 pounds, that's the minimum that it would get started to for what I was quoted from a textile company to get started. Uh, and make them making t-shirts and that process is going to cost about a hundred thousand dollars so it would you know outside of me raising my cotton all like i normally do i would have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to be able to turn my cotton into clothing to you know you know sell on a yes a direct um as a direct supplier so it's a really expensive ordeal so that's why i got into the home decor thing because it, it was it's my like it's like my lean business version of what i want to do is basically get my raw cotton into the consumer's hands and, and even at this model right now 99 percent of my cotton goes to conventional cotton you know uh markets like with the pool but i'm taking just one percent of my cotton and doing the home decor thing and made a completely viable business out of it yeah it's i mean it's awesome like seeing the the value added aspects of decorative cotton especially being that that is the type of system that you're dealing with what type of cotton do you grow on your farm uh it's different different varieties of genetically modified cotton like pretty much what everybody else is raising all right was you going to ask me a question about organic cotton oh i was going to ask you if you were familiar or or if you have used any type of cotton that is specific to the region. So where I live, I've been learning a lot about Sea Island cotton. So I was wondering if there were any type of heirloom varieties of cotton or anything specific to North Carolina? Not necessarily. I don't, I don't know of any type of heirloom products uh, for cotton. Most of the cotton farmers are into, you know, raising just the genetically modified cotton that that goes into these big these pools and whatnot like when it comes to sustainable agriculture and cotton it's really hard because cotton is it's very cheap you know if you're talking about 70 cents per pound or 80 cents a pound uh you know uh cotton farmers are are really in a buying when it comes to finding uh, affording labor to weed out their cotton so like uh, I, I know you do research on organic cotton, and I just don't see the feasibility out of it. Mostly, you know, in most small farmers' cotton cotton setups. I mean, that was the that was how people raised cotton in the past, and nobody hardly want to do it because there's no money and it's hard hard work. So it's hard to imagine people wanting to do organic cotton right now. I just can't imagine it as someone who raises forty to fifty acres of cotton a, a year, and. Um, it's, I'm small time. I'm small potatoes. Like I'm small as it come when it comes to like cotton farmers you find now. And uh, I, there's no way I could do it uh, organically. Mm. So for you, growing organically is difficult because of the cost and also the amount of money um, that you receive. So the overhead doesn't really meet the profits. Yeah, the way I see it right now. 
Absolutely. Especially when you're in the conventional cotton market, what you raising with the co-ops. Uh, now, what I'm for what I'm doing, there may be potential for me to do small plots to be able to just say for marketing purposes that I raised it uh, organically or sustainably. But uh, in regards to the purchasing power, people can't tell the difference between organic cotton or regular cotton in true in true production pattern. People mostly think my cotton is organic because I'm putting it in their hand, but people doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean what the production practice is of organic versus you know conventional. Hmm. So one of the things that I've also been sort of in between in like my research and then my existence is one half of the conversation where people are talking about sustainability and they talk about cotton and how it's bad for the environment and you know people talk about organic cotton but as you are describing it it is so difficult as a farmer to for one have the funding to do that and also to make sure that there's a market or end goal is there anything that you would like to add to the conversation about what it's like to be a farmer to be small scale and to know that there's this other push for sustainability and organics that isn't contextualized through the ways in which farmers actually have to bring these things to the market. Well, uh, I'm not a person that received a, a form of education in agriculture like through a college, but uh, I grew up farming and then I got into the agriculture profession after, uh, after I received my degree. And so like I've always worked in and in real life on the ground farm practices and you have this idea ideologies of what people want but then they don't understand the cost behind what it really what it really takes to make these things happen so uh it's like you know the ideology of what people dream of what they think principles they want in farming but then those practices don't actually really match what uh getting a product to the marketplace really looks like so uh, I think some kind of way we got to get sustainable people and conventional people to be on the same page of what's really happening. And I, the best way I can see that in the schools and education wise, is we got to show people exactly what our systems are and what they look like. Because a lot of people like I, I like to show what I'm doing online because a lot of times people don't know what farming really looks like. They just, you know, read about it, but they have no clue what it looks like or what it could possibly feel like to actually do work. So people don't even understand why the the labor cost is so expensive in um, farming. Like it, like you know, you get you fighting mosquitoes, you're fighting heat, you're fighting weather, and then the energy that's required. You know, you got you get people that want to do it for a day, a week, maybe even a season. But to be able to do that stuff year in and year out, it takes dedication, and a lot of it's hard to find that workforce in rural areas. Or even in urban areas, a lot of urban people don't want to be work, doing physical labor that's outside. No, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, that makes that makes all of the sense. That's one of the things that I came up upon a lot when I first started talking about it. I mean, I'm I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't have um, I, I don't have that type of farming experience. My first introduction into farming or agriculture was urban gardening in Brooklyn and in Manhattan and working with farmers in New York State. One of the things that I often found myself 
in conversation with as well is the cultural context of cotton um, and the cultural context of just being a maker and using materials that were once cash crops and things like that. I've seen that you've opened up a lot of dialogue about that. Um, you use the term cotton is our culture. Can you speak to what that means? Okay. Well, uh, like my last name is Tillery and uh, most of Tillery's that are in America right now, the black Tillery's are, are descendants from Tillery Plantation in Eastern North Carolina. Like I'm from a rural area where it's always been an agriculture. And uh, I wanted us to claim, reclaim our culture in a positive way. So I want this business to be like something that gives strength. So I was thinking that if, if I just off the gate, you know, show my leg, uh, show my company is something is strong and saying, hey, we claiming this, we owning this, then people can, you know, take that all the way back to where they come from. Because, uh, like, in our rural area, it's very poor, but I feel like if we reclaim what's ours and and really dedicate and say, hey, we're not letting this uh, thing uh, scar us. We're going to let this 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 asset of ours empower us, then we can, you know, be empowered by it, actually. So uh, it's just, you know, more deeper meaning, cultural meaning, that I'm trying to connect people back to their roots. That's dope. So kind of going back to what you mentioned before about the cotton cooperative, do you see that there could be a potential to create something that maybe if there was a network of farmers who did put all of their yield together and then found a way to work with a mill and spin their own yarns to come out with a collection that maybe isn't necessarily participating in that system? I would like for that, but... uh it's really hard to achieve it because we don't have that many cotton farmers now in general that's close together that could want to work together it's like it's really expensive to get into gin and business like we have to raise capital like we never raised capital before by farmers together like we need to come together and raise millions of dollars and it's, it's just hard to do because it's something that's never been done before so i mean i'm trying to lead the charge but it's hard for me to partner with people that are not willing or know how to do what needs to be accomplished. Hmm. And would you say that that might be something that's generational? Like what might be some of the, the reasons that that might be difficult? Well, we got to understand in the agriculture industry, when you, when you trying to set yourself up as competition, you playing hardball with people is this is not known like simple games. So none of this stuff has been simple answers. The reason I have my business now, is because of the internet and I'm able to make connections outside of just my local area. Like my father and grandfather could never imagine them making connections to sell cotton in other, you know, other states the way that I do it now. So I feel like we're going to have to be able to take down the borderlines of cities and states and regions. And we just got to know black people, we got to be able to work together, but that's going to actually be us working in realism and not in, uh, the clouds of ideologies and uh, fantasies of what we want. Because I want a lot of things, but I know that, you know, what I want may not exist. And for me to build it, it's going to take true work. And, you know, real realistic financials. Because I know how hard it is to raise $10,000, let alone uh, millions of dollars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I I definitely understand I mean, there's definitely a lack of overall 
resources for farmers. I mean, when you think about the amount of farmers across the states, and even though the amount of farmers is dwindling, there really isn't a lot of funding. There isn't a lot of opportunities and a lot of the requirements and things that they have and prerequisites for farmers and farming make it even more difficult. Um, one of the things that I came across was Pickford versus Glickman which was the suit against the USDA for discrimination against black farmers. And um, also realizing that there is this, there's a dialogue amongst people who just kind of understood that there was an obvious difference between the funding and the amount of help that white farmers got and what black farmers didn't. In addition to the fact that agriculture is already dwindling, you have people within agriculture who have already not been given an evil leveled playing field mm -hmm. yeah no it's, it's the uh black farmers case against usda or pitford versus what you, you said the pitford case it's is detrimental to black farmers in general like we took a big uh loss in general like for decades and then it was a, a achieved that you know we won a case but when a lot of farmers was waiting for the settlement money the uh the farmers aged out and Families start lost interest in farming. A lot of people just got out of agriculture. So uh, some farmers I talked to felt like the case really hurt black farmers all together because we, we we stopped working together after such, after the case. We just mostly took the settlement. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean we could we could have full podcasts just on that on that case. I mean it's a lot of stuff with the black farmers case because it was systematic. It wasn't just the USDA, but all the friends and people connected to it which connects back to racist systems and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't try to get into conspiracies, but black farmers, we had a tough time in this agriculture world. And that always, that went back, you know, even after slavery, share, sharecropping. And after sharecropping, farmers just trying to get their own little piece of the pie. Yeah, so like, I mean, the systems have been really hard on farmers who really been interested in farming, at, even after slavery. So. I don't like to try to compare everything to slavery because slavery was so terrible. We just still overcoming systems now. But what I do see as an opportunity in the black farmers world right now is that most of the black farmers now are more educated than ever. We, we got people who got PhDs that are farming, people who have master's degrees that are farming, business owners and executives. Like, you know, our parents' generation who are inheriting farms are typically the people who are most accomplished in the family. So if we all use our brain power to work smart together and raise money together and, you know, sell in our communities, sell outside of our communities, we have an opportunity that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago where regional markets dominated things and you were just prevented from getting to customers. Like the systems we live in are not by accident, they're by purpose. But if we, if we are purposeful, we can change things. so many avenues that the conversation can go. I feel like there's always this, when you wanna talk about the social context, you talk about the social context, but then when you wanna talk about the literal context of like farming, it's another conversation. And like you said before, there definitely needs to be a communication between the two. One of the things that I came across was noticing how different the conversation was. When I went to Mississippi and I interviewed farmers, the, all of the things that they were concerned with were completely different than things that the people in 
you know, New York who are, who go to school to learn about sustainability, their conversations and concerns were so different. And so there is this difference. And I guess I'm wondering, and this might be a, a very huge question, but what do you think are some ways that we could collaborate or we could work together, even if it's something small, even if it's supporting something specifically, but, but what are some of the ways that you feel that this sort of, um, collaboration could happen? I definitely feel like social media is helping with that. I see a lot of uh, ag Twitter, you know, talk like farmers from this part of the country and that part of the country talking together. I feel like it's the same thing is happening with the cultural world and uh, farming together with, you know, people of color through Facebook and uh, through conferences and coming together events. So um, social media is definitely helping with that. And I think we should continue to document what we do. Definitely. So sort of switching gears, your farm is open for visits by appointments. Can you walk us through some of the things that we might expect on a farm visit? Okay. Well, if you came on a farm visit, I mean, first I like to start my farm tours at my Black Cotton office. That's in Garrysburg, North Carolina. We're right off um, Interstate I-95, um, and you come into town. Uh, you would notice that it's uh, very rural, but it's a black town, 90% black town. And, um, you know, so I tell black people all the time, it's one of the safest places you can be. It's, these are your, your cousins, your country cousins. But, <laughs> you know, we're right here, we're right here in the school building. Um, and uh, my farm is about 15 minutes away from here, but it's still on the same trek. And um, when you get to my farm, you'll see my farmhouses, you'll see the crops, and we'll give you a little tour of like some of our places in our farm, like just different fields. Cause like um, we have a 400 acre farm, but it's not all in one square. It's like in different places, you know, like like we like in the same little town but in like the same little area or a particular area, but not in one field. You, had to, you, could, you could drive around to it. So do you have any new projects that you would like to talk about or bring light to? I mostly just want people to know about our farm tours and basically in our cotton fields, we're gonna have areas where people can take pictures and that's really a big thing. People like to take pictures in the cotton field um it's 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 really cool you know especially during the fall season you know you can take some beautiful pictures so if you like to take some beautiful pictures in the cotton field definitely come by you know you come to our tour you'll see um my gift shop and it's all it's all kind of, I'm, I'm in it right now and it's just all kinds of different decoratives and everything you'll need for unique gifts like when you give a black cotton gift this you'll give a gift that somebody never's had before most of the time and if people want to come visit, where can they find you on social media or the internet to follow your work? Uh, at blackcotton.us on Instagram and um, on Facebook black, at blackcottondecor. Uh, and um, my website is www.blackcotton.us. Please just come connect with me. <laughs> It's been really great talking to you and I really appreciate the amount of insight that you've given us. Before you go, I just have one question that we asked everyone. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom to weavers or textile artists, farmers, beginning 
farmers, anyone on how we can support farmers and support systems that help keep you working in your field and creating all of the things that we use within our daily lives. Um, Connect with real. Connect with people that you know and see on everything, you know, farming, textiles, uh, food. I, you know, like so much stuff we buy that's cheap from play, from people in places we never don't know what's happening to. Buy the stuff from the people we know. Yeah, support the people you know. Like adds dollars too. So like the people you stuff you know. Stop supporting these people we don't know. Absolutely. I fully agree. <laughs> so thank you again for joining the podcast and thank you for being here. All right. Appreciate it. That's a wrap. I really enjoyed talking with Julius this week, and I hope that you all enjoyed listening in on the conversation. For links to his website, you can visit our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 37. In the weeks to come, you can look forward to conversations with farmers of various backgrounds talking about their farming practices, as well as how they found their way towards textile farming. I'll be talking to farmers who cultivate flax for linen, as well as indigo for dye. In two weeks, we have Casey Lynn of Fiber Farm, a textile artist and weaver who studied fashion but decided to sustainably raise alpacas on a small homestead in the Tennessee foothills. I am so excited to help share these stories, and I hope you all enjoy listening to them as well. See you in two weeks. Thank you to Jane Stafford Textiles for sponsoring the podcast. Don't forget to sign up for the Jane Stafford Textiles newsletter to receive that free PDF download of Project Planning 101, a Weaver's Toolkit, and to learn more about the online guild. You can sign up at bit.ly slash jstguild. The JST Online Guild offers in-depth weaving instruction in the comfort of your own home. Subscribers have instant access to a library of foundational videos and workshops from previous years, plus each episode from the all-new 2019 season as they are released throughout the year. Ten episodes in all. It's truly a fabulous resource at an accessible price, and many of you have reached out to me after last week's episode to say that Jane is instrumental in your own weaving journey, so make sure you check that out. It's bit.ly slash jst guild next week on the podcast we're turning the table a bit and i'm going to be the guest i'll be sharing a bit about my own journey as an artist and weaver and why i started this business and podcast and what is in store for the future tune in next monday to hear that conversation and until next time happy weaving